welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by SHP. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. In this special episode, we're able to bring you the full recording of Louis Theroux's keynote session at Safety and Health Expo, which took place at London's XL in May. I was delighted to spend an hour with Louis on the keynote theatre in front of a packed audience to discuss all things from communicating effectively and working in hostile environments to health and well-being. I hope you enjoy. My name is Ian Hart. I'm the editor of SHP. Welcome to Safety and Health Expo. Louis Threw is a journalist, documentary presenter, producer and writer. His unique style of investigation has looked into everything from celebrities in the US prison system, far-right groups to adult films. His simple yet direct style has revealed personalities, lifestyles, loyalties and beliefs of those often misunderstood, written off or ignored. Starting out in print journalism, Louis moved to television as a correspondent on TV Nation, examining the strange and dangerous and controversial elements of American life before joining the BBC to develop his Weird Weekend series, which often put him in dangerous and compromising positions. Returning to the UK, Louis followed Weird Weekends with When Louis Met, in which he spent time with a range of unusual celebrities from Anne Whittacombe and Chris Eubank to Neil and Christine Hamilton. In 2019, Louis set up Mindhouse, an independent television production company which aims to tackle thought-provoking and complex subjects using intelligence and humour. Please welcome to the stage, Louis Threw. Welcome to the expo, Louis. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, nice to be here. Can I start by just saying, is this ironic or not? I don't think it's that ironic, but it's a health and safety expo, and I arrived on a motorbike. I don't know, it just seemed... I'm not normally a motorbike rider. It strikes me as quite dangerous. You're getting an idea of who I am already. But I was running so late, I was in Leicester Square that they called a special man, and I rode on the back... He was in leathers, I might make it sound a bit homoerotic, and I clutched him quite tightly, and he whisked me through the traffic, so I'm here before you on time and in one piece, and a little bit thrilled. I want to start with your your conversational style. Obviously, health and safety professionals are really often underfunded, under-resourced, and communication is one of the key elements and main strengths when it comes to implementing new ideas and bringing people along on the journey with them. Many of the, the people you see in front of you are, are great communicators, health and safety leaders. One of your great strengths is how you manage to kind of build a rapport with your interview subjects and enable them to feel comfortable. Mm. What advice have you got for building relationships and communicating effectively? Well, that's a great question. I think in the end, in, over the years, I've been in TV 25 years and sometimes looked in the mirror and wondered, what am I good at? Like, I, I sort of feel like I've been the beneficiary of an enormous amount of goodwill, a lot of awards, three BAFTAs. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think you mentioned the BAFTAs in the intro. An RTS award, anyway, the list goes on. But the point being, like, sometimes it's like, well, what, what do I actually do? Like, what, what, you know, there's lots of people who are more intelligent, certainly better looking, better dressed. You know, people on TV who I admire and who I think, like, I would dream of having the talent that you have. And I think, I think I do have a talent, is the good news. Although I don't think it's a particularly sophisticated one. I think it's a talent for, as you say, building rapport, meeting people and developing relationships. And I wish it was a sort of Harry Potter type thing where you're just born with a magical ability. It's not that. It's something more to do with a willingness to be vulnerable, I think, is part of it. It's a sense of of not presenting a facade and actually attempting to communicate with people in a real way. Like, and it relates to so many areas of life. You know, sales, I think, is one, and TV interviewing is another. But any industry, any form of work where you have to relate to people and communicate with them, it's about being present. And it's a lot of it's things that your mum will have told you about, or maybe your dad. Like, it's the idea of if you're going into a house, say, shall I take my shoes off? If someone's coming over to say hello to you and you're sitting down, in general, I stand up and say hello, offer to do the washing up if you're at home. Even if you're in the home of a white supremacist or a gangster rapper or a porn performer, you know, the normal rules apply. You just try and be a helpful and accommodating person. How do you go, I think one of the, the, the you know, interesting you talk about vulnerability there, because I think sometimes there's a blame culture in health and safety and people are afraid to kind of speak up and be vulnerable and admit that either something's gone wrong or something nearly went wrong. How do you put yourselves in, in, in the shoes of, of the people you're interviewing and, and, and allow them to be vulnerable with you and you to be vulnerable with them? Well, look, I think whenever someone comes on a TV programme, in a funny way, they're already accessing a kind of vulnerability because they're sort of somewhat at the mercy of my process, right? It's a big step to take to say like, all right, you come in my home and you film with me 
on the understanding we're going to go off and edit that and present it to millions of people in the UK and around the world. The other part of it is to do with the fact that if I've learned one lesson over the years, as far back as you know, when I first started in TV in 1994, it's to do with the weirdness of the human condition, but specifically that the weirdest thing about weird people is how normal they are, right? Which is a neat paradox. I came up with that about 30 years ago, and I've been working it ever since. But I think it's really true. Like, I went to a white supremacist compound in uh, 1996, and I remember it was the weirdest place possibly I've ever been. Like, it, weird in the full sense. Like, the people were strange, borderline mentally ill, you might argue. They were fans of Adolf Hitler. There was a picture of Adolf Hitler wearing a, a kind of Christmas Santa hat. There were dogs named Hans and Fritz. There was a guard tower. It was in Idaho. It was snow everywhere. And at the top of the guard tower, the guy who was showing me around, his name was Jerry Grudel. He was a little bit camp. He'd had five wives, anyway. And he said to me, amidst the snowy wilderness, and he said, are you a big fan of Are You Being Served? Like, he just mentioned the fact that, you know, a big sitcom from the 70s, and then he started talking about Benny Hill and how much he liked Benny Hill. And, and I remember, I, if you remember, probably no one here remembers Are You Being Served. But the thing was that the main character in it was Mr. Humphreys, who was a feminine sales assistant whose catchphrase was, I'm free. And I, I wanted to get Jerry to say, I'm free. I thought it would be funny. And then he refused. And then he descended into this anti, horrible anti-Semitic rant. It was like disgusting, bilious, horrible, toxic anti-Semitic rant. The weirdness of like going from kind of, are you being served to Mr. Humphreys to sort of Hitler and anti-Semitism? And what I realized is like these contradictory qualities are packaged inside singular people. And, you know, hopefully none of us is, you know, harboring those, that, that level of poisonousness. But we all have complex contradictory emotions. And it's in reaching out and finding that part of someone on the understanding that even somebody who seems presentable and imposing and on top of their game, there may be a frightened little person, almost undoubtedly, somewhere inside, there will be that. I guess uh, you can do all the preparation in the world for something like that. A lot of that is about adapting to the situation. And, 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 and I think one of the key importance of communication is actually listening. Listening, yeah, listen, good point. asking the right question, listening to the answer, and then being able to adapt and flow and, and kind of take the conversation wherever it goes. Definitely, yeah, listening. Someone said to me once, um, what are your tips for interviewing someone? Is it important to listen? I mean, to me, that's like saying, what's your tip for playing tennis? Is it important to hit the ball back? Do you know what I mean? I would think that was a bare minimum of playing tennis and of being an interviewer. How are you going to communicate? And I, but I suppose in a way, you know, and maybe this has an application to health and safety, but you can get stuck on scripts to the point where you sort of lose touch with what's happening in front of your very eyes. You know, as much as it's important to do preparation and to have an expectation as to what you're going into and what you're supposed to do, but you've also got to trust the evidence of your senses and respond to your own sense of what's actually happening. And in an in interview, it is easy to sort of get lost, I suppose, in, oh, I, I thought it would go this way, and I got these great questions, perhaps. You know, these funny jokes, I'm going to... I've written, you know, but when I first started, I worked with Michael Moore at TV Nation, and he used to have sheets of funny lines and funny jokes. And the first time I went out on location, I was interviewing the Ku Klux Klan uh, in, the, in the American South, and I had funny jokes written for me. And then, I, you know, I realized, actually, like, just, just forget the funny jokes. Just go in there and react to what's happening, and, and you'll, you'll get to a more interesting place. You know, you've got to really just be in the moment somewhat, because if you've done your preparation, that will come into play, right? You sort of trust your instincts to have the learning and the skills there, but meanwhile, pay attention to what's happening around you. And you mentioned you, you're, you're going into people's houses with a, with a TV crew, and, and you know, it's quite, quite daunting for them, I imagine. I imagine you're quite daunting as well. Does, does your reputation... I'm daunting. Does, does, does your I'm reputation, daunted. I don't think I'm daunting. Does it, does Maybe I am. As a, as a great am I, interviewer, am I does, that, does that hamstring you in those situations? A great where, you interviewer. Know, you're going in and, and being, you know, you're through the interviewer. That thank you, Ian. I appreciate that. Like, I sometimes have to be reminded, like, you know, there's this phrase du jour, which is imposter syndrome, and it's probably overused, but and I think it's overused maybe because we all have a degree of imposter... Imposter syndrome is just like the, 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 the butterflies you used to get on your first day at a new school, like it, 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 imposter syndrome starting a new job and thinking like, am I gonna be able to cut it, right? Or going on stage on the first night of a big performance and thinking, is this gonna work out? Like, but I think that idea of feeling like um, I'm gonna measure up is, is very common. And certainly that's how I relate to the world. Like I, I mentioned to you, I came to this from an event in the Leicester Square where I was launching some programs for Amazon. 
And there was a moment where I was being interviewed and I just got panicked. Maybe there's people out there who are absolutely in control on their A game, but I have these moments of feeling deeply insecure. And, and so when you describe, and I didn't mean to make fun of you, Ian, when you called me daunting, what was the other thing? An amazing interviewer, a great interviewer. But I don't, it's nice to hear that. I don't walk around feeling that. And in fact, if anything, I have bad days at work like everyone else. And, and I maybe, maybe part of, of feeling like you don't measure up is, is important to, to, to kind of always reminding yourself to try harder, like to be prepared. Because I think the minute you take it for granted, then maybe it all falls away somewhat. You know what I mean? Like, I'm amazing. I'm Louis Theroux. You've got notes for me to read. I don't need to read notes. I'm just going to go in there and vibe. That doesn't work. You've got to do your preparation. Let's just talk a little bit more about that then, because I've read that you're, 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 you're kind of you don't really sometimes you're a bit anxious sometimes you don't really like that that social interaction and you're obviously then going into into quite daunting environments yeah. where you're you know you don't really know what's going to happen you can obviously I said we can do all the prep you want but yeah. how do you deal with that that kind of anxiety and, and putting yourself and you know putting yourself out there as yeah. well as getting the interviews well that's a good question and I think I was surprised that some people were surprised when I said that I have a degree of social anxiety or anxiety in general really like when I was I grew up in South London and I went to a primary school and one of my earliest memories is of seeing people in the in the playground in the year above when I was in the infants and they were dancing around the maypole right I don't know if they still do that at school maybe um, you know maybe they've stopped I don't know it, they look quite dangerous like the large wooden pole it could you know with people with ribbons prancing around looks like it could topple over maybe they secure them with sandbags the point being I saw that and thought, that looks really hard. I'm four years old thinking, like, how am I, I'm supposed to do that next year when I'm in the top of the infants. How am I going to prance around holding a ribbon, braiding an intricate pattern with other kids? That looks extraordinary. And I remember staying up at night and my mum said, are you all right? So I can't sleep. So why can't you sleep? She said, I don't think I'm going to be able to dance around the maypole. I don't know how to do it. And there were all kinds of things that worried me, like, growing up and paying taxes anyway the point being like oh you know just like, well, how am i going to pay taxes louis you're four years old you don't have to pay taxes for another 15 20 years don't worry about it like i'll never be able to read and write like i just used to get into little spirals and i still to some degree am capable of getting overly anxious about things and i think you know it's mental health week so maybe this is a good time to be talking about it but i do think that there are ways of managing that you know and, and i think a lot of it is just obviously just taking a step back taking a breath reminding yourself that you've done things before and that if it doesn't work out it's not the end of the world you know i think i have a support of the support of a wonderful family but also people at work you know we keep an eye on one another you know in terms of being at work like the odd thing is when i go into prisons i feel relatively relaxed you know when i'm when i when i'm in, you know go to a jail even the scene of a riot i tend not to be worrying so much and and it's really but if you say like go on stage in front of a thousand people and 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 sing get by with a little help from your friends which i did in one episode of uh, weird weekends i actually started quivering like a leaf and incapable of singing so i guess my point is just that you know you just you know anxiety is real and there are ways of managing it and you just got to acknowledge it and talk about it but in the end it's a mysterious thing and how do you balance your your kind of own feelings of mental health, I guess there must be situations when you, you almost kind of feel guilty that you're not able to intervene in the situation where you're, you're dealing with someone at a real low ebb, you know, you're, you're, you're there to watch and observe, you're not there to, to intervene in their, in their situation, and you must go away with that thinking, you know, could I have done more, should I have done more, how, how do you balance that? Well, it's, it, 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 there's, a, there's a dimension to being a journalist that can, on the face of it, seem rather ruthless, you know, growing up in the 80s, remembering the famines that Michael Burke reported on in Ethiopia. And that, uh, probably like everyone, I used to look at that and think like, well, why can't, can't the person on camera, can't they feed, you know, you as a child, you think, can't they help? You know, and actually, you know, you don't appreciate that in, in a sense, like the job of a reporter is not as such to help. Like they, they're not, they, they, if they want to go and drive food lorries, that's fine, but they're no longer doing their job as a reporter at that point. They are famine relief workers, right? And I've been in situations where, um, I've been around, especially when children are involved, as a father myself, that's the most painful time when you see kids in situations where they seem they may be at risk. And it's, it's complex and, you know, it's a temptation to take it on board. All you can do is follow the protocols of the, you know, the BBC has strict guidelines as to if you see a child at risk, you refer it up, you know, you talk to your manager, there's an editorial policy dimension. 
But in the end, like, it, 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 it's, it's stressful, but you sort of have to steel yourself somewhat. And I think the times when it's most... Look, I th it may be that I have a, a slightly steely disconnected part because actually most of the time I don't take my work home with me. Like I've been involved in things that were extraordinarily intimate and I did a program about people who were approaching the end of their life in hospital, taking last chance medical interventions but often they weren't working out. I did a story about people ending their life more or less voluntarily because they had end of life conditions like cancer or brain injuries. I mean I've done some very heavy subjects. Most of the time, I've been, I've been okay with it. My lowest ebb, this is quite personal, but here we go. My lowest ebb is always involved where I feel like, was there something I could have done that might have affected the outcome? Or did my presence in any way lead to the situation getting worse? Or did I fall down? Was there something about me discharging my duties as a journalist that made a situation worse than it might otherwise have been? You know, most of the time that never happens. The one, you know, I don't think it's any secret to the people here that I did a program about Jimmy Savile and having made it and then discovering 10 years on the extent of his criminal history you know, and the extent to which he'd been a predator, that was a moment where I had to do a sort of internal inventory that was stressful and that did preoccupy me a lot, that involved me thinking through, was there things that I could have done otherwise? Was there more that I could have done in order to blow the whistle? Was there, more, was there things that I missed? So in terms of the most stressful and upsetting experience where I, I didn't, it, was, it began to preoccupy me, that was the one that was most striking. And I read in your book on just on that, actually, when, when that came to, to kind of, it all blew up and it was, it was kind of, you were, the, you were the one that was kind of put up as, as the face of the, of the documentary. You yeah. were the one that was put up to answer all the questions about it and kind of the, the script writers and the producers were kind of... <laughs> well, well, it was an odd situation because um, when I made the programme about Jimmy Savile, what I, it was 2000, I think it was 2000 when we made it, put it on air. I knew him as a, as a sort of superannuated oddity, an over-the-hill kind of TV dinosaur, or, like, or with, with a kind of famously obscure private life that, that of, of which rumours that he might be untoward swirled, but none of them were um, particularly well-established. Well like, it was just something that was said in the same way that there were, I, you know, news flash, there's people in the public eye now of whom there are rumours about them, but, what, you know, one hesitates to endorse them without something firm, right? And so, uh, having made the program, it went out, it did very well, and then 10 years went by, and when it all came out, it was sort of as though all the people who'd actually promoted his career, the people who actually commissioned his programs, the people who actually involved with, and not just at the BBC, but across the border, like Broadmoor Mental Hospital, where he sometimes volunteered and worked, at Leeds General Infirmary, at other, at basically schools, uh, newspapers that p employed him, the Sunday People, he had a column. I mean, he had many different patrons. And, not, and the people who gave him awards, right? The people who gave him a knighthood, or OBE, or the people... I mean, there were so many people. So, but for some reason, um, well, not for some reason, because it was such a toxic thing to be associated with, clearly they, they, they sort of didn't want to be front and centre of responding to how they'd had an association with him. Whereas I was willing to step up and sort of actually made a follow-up programme saying, like, how did we miss this and how was I not able to say more? And just going back, you mentioned the BBC there and the kind of protocols they have in place. There's obviously been a lot of kind of high-profile cases over the last few years, particularly in reality TV with, with people taking their own yeah. life. And what kind of aftercare support do you have for the people that you interview um, and, and put in place to kind of help them? You know, they obviously talk about some traumatic stories with you yeah. and it might, must be... Well, look, this is a really... And I think this is something, if I can big up the BBC for a second, because I think in the streaming, in the sort of post-Netflix, post-streaming universe, the BBC is sometimes held up as a bit of a dinosaur, and people say, well, why would we have a license fee when we can get Netflix for whatever it is, 10 or 15 pounds a month? The truth is, is that the BBC does have protocols in terms of ensuring the protection of contributors that are, I think, the gold standard for how that should take place, and one of them is, if you're doing a story involving a contributor who may in any way be vulnerable, a psychological assessment will be done to make sure that the person is okay, that they're not going to be exposed in a way that will be damaging to their mental health. Again, depending on who the contributor is, if they're extremely vulnerable, it might be the case that they can with withdraw consent. You know, you have some version of rolling consent. So in other words, any point in the process, they can say, do you know what, I'm not on board with this or I'm not feeling comfortable, it's damaging. 
And then after the fact, there's hand-holding that goes through by the team, the producer, to make sure, check in, make sure they're all right. And then when the program goes out, they're given various bits of advice, stay off social media as so far as possible, here's a viewing copy, or here's ways in which you can handle what, you know, you, things will be coming in, here's some advice on that. And then the offer of ongoing professional support. We just did a program with Joe Wicks. I'm not in it, but it was presented by Joe. It's called Joe Wicks um, Facing My Childhood, I think it's called. And it basically explores the fact that his dad, when he was growing up, was a heroin addict. His mum had serious mental health issues. So Joe Wicks, notwithstanding his amazing kind of effervescent and positive personality, is coming from a situation where his upbringing was very chaotic. And he explores that in the film. And part of the process of that was offering Joe and his family mental health support as the program went out. It's not just the people you're interviewing as well. As a business owner yourself now, you must have to have a responsibility for, for your staff, for your camera crew, for, your, for your, all the people behind the scenes as well. Um, how do you manage that situation? Okay, now you've got me on thin ice. I'm gonna have to, am I going to have to pretend that I'm intimately involved with managing the mental health of my team? The truth is, is I don't really know. But I do know that we care about our team and we do basically... You know, this was one of the things post-pandemic, I think, that was so brilliant about getting back into the same workspace is I think a lot of people were suffering at home during the pandemic and, and where we've had issues at work. You know, what I've realized, setting up a, I set up a company two years ago with my wife, two and a half years, after 25 years of sort of loyally working within the BBC. So some of these responsibilities are quite new to me. And the idea was, well, what if I make programs that I'm in, but also programs that I'm not in? That was what was exciting. But the reason I mention it is, I thought it'd be all about, oh, making programs and picking the right team and this great editor and that great director and we'll promote it but it's 90 percent it, it, of it is about managing emotions you know the human dimension of people getting on not exactly bullying but disagreements where people get deeply hurt and upset you know it, it's not tripping over ladders although i'm sure that's part of it it's just actually people going home feeling wounded or feeling unheard and i think that was so much exacerbated when people were off in their own little bubbles you know, so you, the misunderstandings would fester. So increasingly, we encourage everyone to be among one another at work. You encourage people to speak up. We have little chats, get together, you know, managing the health just through social interactions and checking in with people. Kind of brings me on to a little bit about social media as well, then, because you know, it puts my people being isolated from one another. Obviously, yeah. social media has been brilliant in enabling that, that connection with people. But in your recent series in, in America, it's obviously highlighted some of the dangers around social media yeah. and some of the powers it gives to people. How do you assess the balance between making a good TV show and giving these people you know, a, a, a platform to, to portray yeah. those extreme views? Well, on? that's a good point. I mean, there's two points there. One is the question to do with to what extent you would be exposed to views that may be not just wrong-headed but actively poisonous, you know, extreme racist content that's being promoted online. I mean, the fact is, is this is real. It's a real-world phenomenon. So my view is that if it's reported on responsibly in a sort of questioning and in interrogative way where you're not simply giving someone a platform but actually reporting, like, I, I think then it's not just valid but important work. The other part of it, though, is the way in which social media does promote toxicity and mental health concerns. With my boys, I see them on their phones constantly. Like, I don't have a kind of easy answer to that. I sort of think there's parts of me that I sometimes think, like, if I just smash their phones, right, and then they don't have any phones, and then everything's going to go so much better because I won't be chasing them around the house saying, it's 11.30, give me your phone back and go to bed, right? But, and then your next thought is, like, are you going insane? You can't smash their phones. Like, no kid who's 16 doesn't have a smartphone. Like, it's just not the real world. So we have to live in the land of the phones, like it or not, and laptops or whatever. And it's just about... I, and, and I also think, like, as much as they, there's a t t sort of, you know, p p hardcore adult content is piped onto these phones, extreme alt-right views are pumped onto their phones, all kinds of strange viral raps on TikTok, are you getting where I'm going, that go jiggle, jiggle, are being piped onto their phones. That was a little... I'm bigging up my own rap on TikTok. Never mind. And Feel free to no, carry It works in the younger crowd. No, no, I'm just kidding. So they have to metabolise all this content. And as much as that's dangerous, I also think that we can over-worry about it too. Do you know what I mean? Like, in other words, 
you know, you know, they say about when you get vaccinated, you get a small amount of the virus. Like it's actually, you, you know, you, I, I do genuinely think like being exposed to small amounts of questionable or difficult or like weird or childish or silly content builds up a kind of an immunity. So I, I don't want to totally protect them, but you guys, have, you've got to walk this line, haven't you? I want to talk about a little, little bit about risk now. You obviously, you know, you put yourself into some really kind of hostile, potentially dangerous situations. What kind of part do you play in, in assessing the risk when you're going into that situation? Um, is it something you kind of think about and worry about? So, basically, this was one of the things I learned when I first got into TV. I thought people on TV, they just sort of waltz into the situation and, and go like, here we are, we're going to start filming now. But surprise, surprise, that's not how it takes place. And, and in fact, one of the pieces of um, paperwork that gets done before you start filming is called a safety assessment uh, or, or hostile environment assessment form, and they fill it out. And so any situation that you might potentially encounter, any kind of danger, and I be to begin with, full disclosure, I used to find them slightly ludicrous. So it would say things like, um, uh, cause for concern, interview will take place on a gun range, P potential hazard, uh, presence of guns, potential solution, presence of gun experts and you're like do we really need a form like do you know what i mean like to, to write all of that down like especially maybe because i was more used to the american landscape you know there's thousands of gun ranges but then, and another one was like potential you know, potential hazard will be driving to the locations potential solution drive safely like come on but actually there's a part of that that forces you to think through situations that you may not otherwise so i sort of came on board with that the other one is just briefly you have to do a hostile environments course and i have to get it refreshed every three or four years where you spend four days at a stately home somewhere in the english countryside with like ex-army guys making you run up and down and sort of look for mines and then and then running into rooms and there's like these dummies that are put there and they're bleeding and they're like you have to sort of heal the dummies. I'm making, I'm sound, making it sound a bit reductive, but they teach you how to like, I'm putting his, him in the recovery position, I'm pulling out his tongue, do you know what I mean? I'm now uh, doing CPR and, and, and actually, as silly as it seems like, or maybe it doesn't seem silly, but actually it's an enormously positive part of how, how to cope with dangerous situations. So all of these come into play and I think they're really valid. And, and, and actually most of the time I'm pleased to say, I'm trying to think, across, you know, across all the years of programming I've done, Touch wood. I don't think I've ever had an injury or ever, you know, been physically attacked or on location in some high-stress situations. We've always been safe. And how much about it is preparing for the worst? I know we spoke before about the story um, when you were doing the city addicted to crystal meth. Uh, yeah. Well, look, that's a good. That's an interesting one because it's to. It, it, basically, I was doing a film about crystal meth in Fresno, and um, and. You know, for whatever, you know, for whatever reason, there's a huge meth problem in Fresno. We were out trying to find someone who was taking crystal meth or dealing it. I can't remember. And it's really awkward in these situations. You're like, we've got to drive around and we're going to, we're going to meet someone and potentially they're going to be taking crystal meth. And you don't want to rock up and go like, well, what time are you taking the crystal meth? Like, because it's getting quite late and we need to get back to the hotel and I'm very tired. So could you take it now, please? Obviously, I would never say that. So basically, we arrive at a location, there's a guy there, and he's already taken the crystal meth, and then he's going to get some more meth, and we're in a housing project, and it's all feeling quite awkward and, and, and weird and potentially dangerous. But, you know, basically, parenthetically, in terms of danger, people think, oh, you're in that scary prison. I would much rather be in a prison any day of the week than out on the streets where there's no prison. You know, in a prison, there's no reason for them to attack a journalist. They can't rob you of your, ca you know, those cameras are worth 50, 60, sometimes 100,000 pounds with a lens on them. Like, but you can't, they're not gonna rob you, of, you know, they're not gonna rob your camera in prison. Like, it just doesn't make any sense, let alone shank you. You know what I mean? Like, you're on my terrain. Like, I'm just a BBC journalist. You have, I don't pose any threat. But when you're out in, in, on a location in a housing project, the, your camera is suddenly going to be an attractive proposition to steal that. Anyway, we were filming this guy, and I just to lighten the mood, in the spirit of creating rapport, I used one of my lines, which is, do you do any rapping? He goes, like, yeah, I love to rap. And I said, would you like to spit some verses? So he goes, and his face lights up. He's really happy now. And he goes like, Oh, down in Fresno, you don't know. I can't remember the rap. It was no jiggle jiggle. But um, <laughs> halfway through the rap, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a gun, and he starts going like this. Now, I've seen enough rap videos to not be especially freaked out. Like, I wasn't expecting it, necessarily, but I knew that, like, in this moment, 
This is not a threat. He's using it as a prop, right? In his, a real gun as a prop to, to sort of make his rap come across better. But my camera, the, the woman who's operating the camera was, was, was a little less hip hop uh, savvy than I was, believe it or not. <laughs> and so she, um, she sort of went like this and then put the camera down. And then when the guy who was rapping with the gun saw her look of alarm that put the camera down, he's like, well, why have you stopped filming? And he got spooked. And then suddenly the situation became tense. And it's almost like a counterintuitive lesson. But the lesson was like, just slightly go with the flow. Like, yeah, oh, that was a great rap, man. That was great. That was, I loved it when you brought the gun out. Maybe put it away now. You know what I mean? De-escalate. But don't create this mood, like it's, you know, it's straightforward communication, like don't make him feel as though tweaked out, you know, his cogs are spinning on his me in his meth-addled brain. Don't make him feel like suddenly, what are you, why are you looking like that? Are you the feds? What's going on here? I don't know how widely applicable, like in your workplace, like a meth-crazed rapper with a gun waiting for the drop of the new meth supply. Like, I don't know if that's going to apply to your workplace, but if it does, then I'm glad I could share that. You never know. Preparing for the worst. You never know. You had another interesting story about often the, the, the greatest hazards are the, are the ones right there in front of you when you were out with the police in Philadelphia. And oh, the, yeah. Well, that was a good one because I don't know if this is an example of health and safety where you know, you're not thinking through or common sense kicks in, but basically we've been told by the BBC in-house health and safety team that it was important that um, we wear on location these bulletproof vests. Now, they're stab vests, which is like already quite a significant layer of protection, and, and, and could probably maybe even stop certain rounds, but there were also these metal plates that you could put in. I was like, do we have to wear the metal plates? They're so heavy and they look ridiculous. I look like I'm going to be walking around Philadelphia, a modern American city, just looking like I imagine, like I've got fantasies of being in Iraq or something. But like, no, just putting plates in, Louis. All right. I'm like, okay, fine. So then they arrive at the location. The police are like, oh, I like your vest. Almost like enviously, like, wow, wish we got those. You know what I mean? Like, but maybe secretly thinking, like, where do you think we're going? Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't actually get shot at very often at all. But anyway, they were polite enough to say, like, oh, I like your vest. Anyway, then I get into the car. And first day on location, I'm climbing the car and I get in the back seat of the police van. I realize my vest is so big like so bulky that I literally can't buckle my seatbelt. So then I'm like, with speed is the location going really fast. I'm like, news flash. I think I'm more likely to die as a result of not having my seatbelt on than I am to die as a result of wearing the vest without the plates. Like, do you know what I mean? And actually, I took an executive decision and took out the plates and buckled up my seatbelt. Well, it's just uh, it's sort of common sense in a way. But it's one of those things where good intentions seem to go awry and create a slightly ludicrous situation. What would you say is the most dangerous situation you found yourself in in, in all the shows that you've made? Well, I mean, it's hard to call because, as I say, I've always been safe. I can tell you the times I've been most afraid have tended to involve animals. I, you know, having all that talk about building rapport, like, you know, you're with a serial killer. Don't, look, I've never been with a serial killer. I don't know why I just said that, as far as I know. But a killer, right? I, got, I, get, I get on stage in front of an audience and suddenly I'm saying I've done things I've never done. <laughs> but I have interviewed killers and you feel like, you know, I, I, I kind of like you. You're like, I know you tortured those people and, and, and you know, did horrible things, but I feel like we, you know, we, we're getting on fine. Like, sure, come around for dinner and look after my kids. But um, when you're, you can't, newsflash, you can't get that degree of rapport with animals. And um, so, and, and, and the pro I did a thing about hunting in South Africa where I got very close to a very hungry lions. And it was like, I was like, wow, it was almost a visceral kind of like all the bonding in the world, all the 70s sitcoms, none of that's going to work. Uh, you know, there's no rapport. Those, behind those eyes is a blank, primal, just hunger. And, and, and the other one is chimpanzees. I did a program about America's most dangerous pets, and I'd read a lot about a chimpanzee attack. Basically, if you have, all the cliches about chimpanzee are true. Like they are either five or ten times the strength of a normal adult human, and they have a propensity to rip off your face. Right? And if not your face, like, so you rip your face off, rip your, which is already bad, you know, by the way. And also, they will rip off your penis and testicles, right? And I guess they go for anything that sticks out a bit. Now, as someone with quite a large nose and quite a, no, 
and a penis and testicles, right? I'm on two counts. I'm already worried and vulnerable. And that, those are two favorite parts of my body, by the way. It's going to be such a long anecdote. But the, the bottom line is, I went to interview a, a family who had chimpanzees, and they thought, like, one of their chimpanzees could swim. And they were like, we'd love to show you our chimpanzees swimming. And I'm like, oh, here it is. Here's that moment. And we're like, what do we do? I had a conference with my director. I was like, dude, I'm just worried about that. I've read too much about them attacking you. I met the little chimpanzee. The little chimpanzee was fine, but the bigger one was of the age where he'd started getting aggressive. They said they'd cut, they'd cut his testicles off. They'd castrated him. Like, we got his balls in a jar in the garage. You got nothing to worry about. Like he's been complete. He's, he'd be, he would be aggressive and dangerous if, you know, because he's an adolescent, but because we've got his balls in a jar, like he won't be, he won't be aggressive. I'm thinking like, he's probably even more angry <laughs> because you've got his balls in a jar in the garage. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, that's not gonna help. He's gonna see you, he's gonna rage. You'll think I've got something to do with it. Anyway, the solution was I hid in the house with my team and we looked through a window. We thought like, if he seems relaxed when he comes out, we'll come out and do the interview, but otherwise we'll just be a little bit safe. So anyway, they lead the, the, the I think the monkey was called Tukum Carey. I may have that wrong. Anyway, they led Tukum Carey out and he was on a little chain. He came out. My recollection is that he got into the hot tub and had a, a beer. That might be wrong. They definitely, I think he had a drink. Maybe they just said he got in the hot tub. But anyway, he comes out. He looks fairly placid. And then he comes up and he looks through the window. We're in the, hiding behind the window, sort of in the kitchen, peering out. And then he looks up. And then something clicks. And he just comes up. And he goes, Woo! And he smashes the window. And we're like, I literally, I yelped. And I, I said, my director called Jamie. And I looked at Jamie. And I was like, ah! You know, like he's coming in, he's, he's seen my nose and he thought it's like, the, that's the most delicious looking nose I've ever seen. But in fact, that what happened was he smashed it and I think he then got shocked. I think he was used to perspex. And I think when the window, when it smashed, he was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that to happen. And then went off again and, and, and I was fine. I think the question was, most, was it the most scared or dangerous? I don't know how dangerous that was. It was, certainly was the most scary thing. I thought I was inches away from emasculation. And then I sort of said, like, well, you know, well, it was great meeting Tukum Carey. And, and she's like, well, but you didn't meet him. You haven't seen him swim. Come out and say hi. I'm like, you know, I think we've got enough. I think we've got enough. Thank you. That was great. Bye. some questions from the audience so if anybody has any questions please get your hands up we've got some microphones that are going to come around um, so we're going to start over there so just talking about fear and uh, talking about anxiety earlier has any of your experiences given you any like irrational fears because it's one thing I, I deal with a lot is weird irrational fears like I'm scared of the dark right sounds really stupid but anything that you have to overcome any small irrational fears yeah I mean I don't think I've have any I mean it's a great question thank you for that I don't have any irrational fears as a result of my work like I'm conscious that I have a degree of anxiety about aspects of like performance so for example I feel very relaxed here among you lovely people but if I was to go if I go on a live show or it feels like a high pressure show like going on Graham Norton which I've done a couple of times I find it rather intimidating and then I get over I try and think it through and the other big one of course is um, flying like I fly a lot I'm fine with flying and nevertheless you know you get into turbulence I, I don't know how common this is like but basically I get I, I, a little a tiny like note of panic sets in and, and I say like you know what flying is one of the safest forms of travel so they say and turbulence is normal these flight attendants look relaxed I'm sure this is another day on the job for them and yet here I am being shaken around and 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 I feel this sort of tension rising and I just have to sort of either ride it out or or, or do my best to sort of take deep breaths and tell myself, you know, you just got to think it through, but it's very hard. Like, I don't know. And fundamentally, that is irrational, isn't it? Because actually, I've probably got nothing to really worry about. Excellent. Thank you. And at the front here. Hi, Louis. Um, so, again, it's about anxiety, but specifically, I hate confrontation. Mm -hmm. And when I watch you sometimes in the situations, I think, how can you just keep asking those questions you can see these people in front of you 
particularly in the far right stuff mm -hmm. in, in America, the recent series you did there. And I'm feeling really anxious yeah. watching you. And I know you said you suffer from anxiety. How do you do that? How do you stand okay, there and that's do an that? Interesting... And why yeah. as well? Well, I, you know, like you, I'm not a huge fan of confrontation. Actually, the question I get asked most often is to do with how do you stay so calm? And the reason I say calm is because I'm not an especially confrontational person. In fact, when I'm on location, I'm there not to sort of play, be Jeremy Kyle saying like, oh, what, isn't it true or why, you know, finger wag or whatever. I'm there like, what is going on with you? Like, tell me about why you think these things. And I sort of have to self-consciously summon a certain level of cold-bloodedness and ruthlessness in order to take the conversation to a place where I know it's going to be more awkward. So in the one you mentioned, it's on iPlayer, it's called Extreme and Online, and there was a guy who in, I met at a far-right rally where I interviewed him briefly, and then I arranged to meet him again, and in the interim I saw imagery of him online delivering what appeared to be Nazi salutes, stiff-armed neo-Nazi salutes, and I was like, well, Okay, and I had almost sick feeling of like, oh, that's horrible. And here's this guy I thought was like, I've, for whatever reason, I thought, you know, there's some part of me wants to believe that people are okay. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm going to clearly have to go there with this conversation. And another part of me felt almost angry, like angry that, which is uncharacteristic for me, but angry that I felt like a little bit, I think partly because also I'd, I heard him online doing interviews on podcasts where he's like, we have to disguise our real views. We have to pretend that we're not as extreme as we are. And I thought, wow, he's actually, he's actually misrepresented himself. He's actually practiced a sort of deception, which, even, you know, which any kind, it doesn't even have to be in the far right space. Any kind of deception feels almost like a personal betrayal, right? It feels like, hey, what the, you know, we, I went into this thinking like, I'm gonna ask you questions and you'll give me honest answers. Anyway, you just, you, you're doing the job, right? So you go in there, you know it's gonna be uncomfortable, I think I said to him, like, look, I hope this isn't too awkward. We cut that out, actually, because my producers, or my commissioner said, like, you know, don't even say, that softens it too much. But I felt in order to get into that place of bringing a more confrontational tone, I needed to say, to, as a prefatory kind of remark, you know, I hope this doesn't get too awkward, but since last seeing you, I've seen you doing you know, what looked like Nazi salutes online. What's that all about? And then he's like, no, no, no. And then I'm like, at that point, emotion kicked in and I felt a bit irked. And then that sort of overrode my fear of confrontation. And at that point, I'm just like, knock it off, mate. I know what I saw. Are you having a laugh kind of thing? This is, they, they quite evidently, it looks exactly like a Nazi salute. So you either explain it or you don't. So I can go there if I, if I have to, but it's not my most comfortable or my sort of natural mode as an interviewer. Question from the peanut gallery. You mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, you're talking a little bit about social media, and I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, I, I don't think I'd be too far out of line saying that you are a purveyor of a very unique, raw and honest form of truth. And oh, thank you. What we're seeing is this, this, this interesting theatre of warfare on truth. Um, yeah. You know, um, and, and to very disastrous and, and deadly effects. How do you see your role as, you know, as a storyteller, yeah. a, a teller of truth evolving, or how do you see this, this theatre of warfare on truth evolving? In, in, a, in a certain way, I hope it would be self-evident that I feel as though like maintaining the most high standards of, of journalism, the highest standards of telling the truth, you know, it's easy to take for granted. Things like the BBC, legacy media, they get a lot of stick in America, like New York Times, New Yorker, like certain old media jewels. And, and I understand like when you can get so much content free or, 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 or you get information on YouTube, it's a temptation to see them as outdated, but I think we're in a moment of correction. I think people are coming to understand the value of maintaining standards of trust but verify. But, but there's a, in general, like, I feel as though uh, we need to just sort of be cognizant of the fact that there are viral forms of untruth. And not to say that everything that the BBC puts out is perfect, but quite evidently they are practicing a higher form of journalism than you might find from some rando on YouTube. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I use the term rando because I like talking like, like a young person. And so I think it's such a high, like with America, like something, something like a half of Republicans, that's not a real statistic. See, I put that disclaimer in, but some high proportion of Republicans now believe that the election was stolen when quite evidently it wasn't stolen. We have to police truth, you know, with a constant vigilance. 
And I think I have a team around me that try and keep me honest. The BBC's on me to attempt to, 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 to do that. But it's an you know, and, and the other part of it is, which you shouldn't, is to try and, because truth is no good if no one watches. Like, you can be truthful in an academic article that no one reads. I think you've got a responsibility to tell, tell stories that people can connect with, like, that are actually going to, people are going to tune in for. You know, that's where the other part of it is, which you were saying, like, are you platforming the far right? No, I don't think so. But I also think, you know, you don't ignore this. You've got to tell stories that there is a thirst out there for stories that feel urgent, and sometimes that means edgy or, or maverick, heretical opinions. And I don't think we should shy away from those, partly because that audience exists, you know, and is being served by alternative news sources, but also because it's a way of connecting with people in an urgent way. And yeah, I, I'm very proud of the fact that that far right film got something like five million viewers on the BBC and on iPlayer which is an extraordinary number, and to be able to actually still connect with those people. So, so it's, it's truth, but also tell story, stories in a way that are going to reach people. Hi, Louis, thank you. You cover a range of topics. Is there a common theme between all the people you've spoken to that helps you communicate to them in such an effective manner? Yes, I think there is, in a sense. I mean, I think the thing to recognise is all the programmes, as much as like, they might be about... Paul Daniels and his wife, Debbie McGee, the magician duo, or it might be about swingers in Southern California, or it might be about, I don't know, people with brain injury in Liverpool, I did one, you know, I've done, all of them are about the existential condition, the human condition, the fact that deep down we're governed by impulses that to some extent are irrational and self-sabotaging. Um, life is a mystery. We are alive for a few short years. You know, as much as we are, we're in this age of amazing technology, but there's still so many fundamental parts of the human universe that we don't fully understand. And we are ourselves. Like, people sometimes say, what's your favorite animal? And I like to say, well, humans, because, you know, I'm married to one and, and my children are also human. Like, but the point being really just that we are animals, you know, and, and as much as we might wear clothes and imagine that we're different, we are governed by instincts that in many respects are unknown to us. And I mention that because the connection that you talk about is to do with the recognition that, th that the, these frailties exist in all of us, right? And that as much as you might try and connect on a rational basis, there's a sort of a form of connection that exists in, in, in a way that is predicated on a mutual recognition of a kind of frailty, you know? that we are putting up false facades, but you can reach people through their weaknesses, I think, more than through their strengths. Hi. Hello. How do you reset in the sense of you don't let your past experiences influence your perception going into a situation? I don't even know if I do reset. Like, don't we? I mean, I sort of think that actually your past experiences are all part of how you go forward and experience your new experiences, right? And in terms of my journey as a filmmaker, I think that's been critical to how I've grown. Like, I, I'm a 51-year-old man. I'll be 52 tomorrow. Happy birthday, Happy birthday, me. Yeah. Tomorrow's May 20th, right? Yeah. So I started out, I was 23 when I first got hired to be a TV presenter on Michael Moore's program. Like, I, that, I'm, I'm a completely different human in, in many important respects. Not absolutely, but... Uh, uh, and so I feel as though part of that's to do with growing and bringing those experiences to bear on everything that I've gone through. I think I take your point in as much as be willing to be surprised, be willing to see that something might be different. Like, you know, I think we've all been guilty of imposing a matrix of understanding on something where it doesn't fit. And actually, some of the time, you walk into a situation that's wholly new. And as I get older, as I get into old fart mode, you know, I'm trying to resist it. In some ways, you heard me use the word rando earlier. I sometimes say other things that the kids say. I'm big on TikTok. But um, I, I'm saying that with irony, okay? But I am big on TikTok. And another part of me, as I get older, like, I really enjoy... It sounds so cringe. That's another word young people use. Is I like being around young people. I enjoy the experience of seeing people with the, with the fresh eyes that they have. Like, you lose that. You get a bit jaded as you get old. You look at things, you're like, that, done that, seen that. I saw that when it was something else. I know that band when they were the other band. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, maybe I'm talking... But so basically, I try and stay fresh. So yes, I do reset. Hi. Hello. How do you stay unbiased with things? So, for example, the Tiger thing, you know, I'm wrapping this around the real question of do you think the Tiger King did it? Legitimately, how do you stay unbiased with these situations? Yeah. And is it important to do so? Yeah, well, look, impartiality is 
is embedded in the DNA. Literally, it's, it's written into the charter of the BBC. So I have to say that I'm impartial. I like to think that I am, although quite evidently, to be absolutely impartial is a kind of platonic ideal that doesn't really exist in the real world. But I do my best. You know, we're all, we're all sort of swimming in a set of assumptions that, to some extent, are invisible to us, but the important ones, I suppose, are to do with, you know, giving people a, a fair hearing. I mean, the other part of the BBC impartiality guidelines are that there are certain things that we're not impartial about. We do believe in the rule of law. We do believe in fair play. You know, we do believe in democracy. We do believe in anti-racism, you know. So I don't try and stay unbiased when I'm meeting a Nazi. I'm not like, okay, heard a lot about Nazis, some good, some bad, but I'm completely open-minded. Give me your best shot to persuade me that this is for me. You know, you don't say that. You say, like, you know, Nazism is a you know, poisonous and toxic point, point of view. Why on earth would you want to be associated with that? On the Tiger King, uh, I got persuaded that he was a rather nice guy. Like, and in fact, maybe in certain metrics, Joe Schreibvogel, a.k.a. Joe Exotic, was and is a nice guy. Like, defining nice as sort of vulnerable, sympathetic, quite funny, entertaining to be around. But do I think he did it? Well, he was beguiled into a situation in which he was implicated in a murder plot. I think the murder plot was real. I think the only inconsistency is that he took the fall, whereas there were other people who we could just as readily build a case around. You know, I think the question is like, is 20 years, 22 years is a long time based on the case, but he was undoubtedly neglectful towards the animals. He undoubtedly shot several of the animals. He's on tape planning the murder of Carol Baskin. So I don't think it was like a, a travesty of justice that he got locked up. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Your hands together for Louis Thoreau. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We were so fortunate to have Louis at Safety and Health Expo. There was a clear buzz around the show in the days preceding his session, and that showed when there was standing room only during the talk. He had some great advice, certainly around the art of communication, listening and building relationships, but also about the importance of being able to compartmentalise your work and keep it separate from your personal life. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Louis Theroux for his time, and to all those who sat in the audience, asked questions and provided such positive feedback. Safety and Health Expo will return next year, taking place from the 16th to the 18th of May 2023. Click on the link in the episode description to register your interest and be the first to know when registration opens. If you're new to the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check out our previous episodes. Last time out, we heard from She Manager at Kia Highways, Dave McPherson, and Health and Safety Officer at Great British Communications, Jessica Collins, about the work they do, how they got into health and safety, and their thoughts on the future of the profession. You can find the link to the podcast hub where all of the episodes are hosted in the description. If you like what you hear, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're also available on your smart speaker. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'd be really grateful if you could rate us and comment on the chosen platform, as that will help us to get the shows out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shhponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news, where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening, and see you on the next episode.